that know me know I, I have a hard time sleeping on Saturday night because this is, this is my favorite time of the week. For those of you that may be watching online, I'm sure you couldn't sleep last night as you were getting ready for this as well. But I, I just love being together. I love seeing your faces. I love the, the fact that there is an energy that takes place when the church is together that cannot be recreated in anything else that takes place within our week. And uh, I'm going to ask if you would take your Bibles and you can turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 22. This is the last of the seven letters that John was instructed by Jesus to write to seven actual churches that were kind of on a postal circuit that went around. And uh, this is the letter to Laodicea. And the, the title of this message is Laodicea, a lukewarm church. We have discovered over these past several weeks that these letters to the first century church has a great deal to say to 21st century Christians that as we've looked at each of these seven letters and each of these seven churches, they were represented by seven lampstands in the vision in chapter 1. So we recognize that the Lord was holding the churches. He's holding in his hands the seven stars or the, the seven pastors of these churches and had something specific to say to each of them. We also have recognized that there is represented in these letters different characteristics that apply not only to them personally, but apply to us. And so we can take as a congregation some of the things that the Lord had said, both that he commended those churches for and some things that he uh, condemned those churches for and recognize in our life that they have applications. So today we're going to be talking about the lukewarm church of Laodicea. So Father, as we have come into your house, we recognize that this is not like any other building in the world. This is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. As a result of that, when we enter in here, we do so with such an anticipation of what you are going to do and how you are going to lead us in your word and that you're going to take it from the page and it's going to explode in life to us and that there will be ways that we will be able to apply this in our life that will bring glory to you. So, Father, in anticipation of all of that, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be able to do his work among us. May our hearts be attuned to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we read the scripture today, as I have kind of started in pattern, let me tell you a little bit about the history of Laodicea because it will come in handy as we begin to see what the Lord wrote to them. To understand them, we have to understand a little bit about this city. This is the seventh in a city that would be in a postal circuit. It's about 100 miles from Ephesus where it all began, which was the first letter that was addressed to them. And Laodicea was really in a tri-cities area. It was about... Um, six and a half or seven miles from Heropolis, and it was about 10 miles from Colossus. And so there were these three cities that were rather close together. And in fact, as they have excavated this, they have discovered many beautiful homes that still existed through that. And they said a number of these beautiful homes were probably uh, owned by Christians that lived in the city. The city of Laodicea itself was kind of a paradox city. It was a city on one hand that had experienced massive failure in the aspect of what it was created to do, and on the other hand it had experienced some tremendous success. It was a failure in the fact that it was founded to be a fortress city. In other words, it was a city that was created that they would be able to be self-sustaining, that even in the middle of a siege it could not be taken. 
It was a massive failure in that respect when after they built the whole city, they discovered that there was no water to be found anywhere in the city, none whatsoever. And so the whole idea of being a fortress city that could withstand all this stuff instantly went out the window when they had to build an aqueduct seven miles to the nearest water for it to be pumped into the city so that any time an army would come, they recognized all we have to do is stop the aqueduct and they are going to all die of thirst in a matter of days. And so this city, which was built at... Uh, was planned and built as a fortress city, was one of great surrender again and again and again. It also was founded to be a missionary city, as we talked about Philadelphia last week, that they were intended to spread the Greek culture and the Greek language everywhere, and they had done it tremendously successfully. Laodicea was a failure in this. Not only had the neighboring communities not learned Greek, but they hadn't learned anything about the Greek manners, and so it was seen as a failure in the fact that it existed as a missionary city. But there were three reasons that Laodicea was considered a success. It was discovered that when this city was in peace, it prospered. And I began to think about that, and I thought, how often is it within our lives as Christians that when we are in peace, we do really well? When there's peace in our homes, we do well. When there's peace at the job, we do well. When there's peace in our health, we do well. But when things begin to come that would cause us issues in our life, that is when we become tested and, and sometimes our spiritual health is diagnosed in a different way. But Laodicea, because the Romans had protected it, was a place of peace. And in that, they prospered. They prospered in the fact that it was a city that was known for its wealth. In fact... So wealthy was this city that the earthquake that we talked about last week that destroyed Philadelphia, you'll recall that it had three name changes because they named it after the Caesar that gave them money to rebuild the city. Laodicea was so wealthy that they, in that same earthquake that, they, that destroyed Philadelphia, they were also destroyed, but they self-funded the rebuilding. So rich was this city that they didn't take any governmental funds, and as a result of that, there was a smugness to the people that lived in Laodicea. This self-sufficiency is, we don't need anybody, and we don't need anything that had kind of taken over. It was also known for a special type of wool. Within this region, there were lambs that produced a shiny black wool that was found no other place in the world. And so garments were being made there out of this particular wool and shipped to all over their known world at that time. It was also known as a center for medicine. And Laodicea was the headquarters of an export industry that had created a pill that when you ground it up and you put it into a dough, people would use that and stick it into the eyes of people who couldn't see because they didn't have glasses like us. And it was purported to be able to help people's eyes begin to focus. And so this eye salve that they created was known throughout the world. I often wondered what it felt like to have somebody mix up medicine and stick a piece of dough in your eye and tell you that everything is going to be okay after that. But that's what they were famous for. So when we approach this scripture written to this city, you have to understand that Laodicea today would be the headquarters of Bank of America, Macy's Department Store, and the Mayo Clinic all rolled into one. And so it is to this culture that we now dive into Revelation 3, 14-22 to understand what Jesus was saying to them. And here's the passage. To the angel of the church at Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I wish you were either one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich and have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In each of these letters, they began with what would be a description of Jesus. And he introduces himself in this way by identifying aspects of his character. It says in verse 14, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. I find it interesting that he starts by introducing himself with a word that we use at the end of a conversation. He says, I am the Amen. Now, I know that when I say Amen at the end of the service, there are kids smiling because they know lunch is about to come. It is over. We're out of here. But he starts this letter with this. And I believe that by doing so, the Lord is calling to himself the reminder that I am the beginning and the end. Nobody has the final word on anything but me. I have it all. But there's also contained within this word, amen, in its original form, there's a strength and a firmness to it. He is reminding the church that there are certain kind of things within their life that he expects them to be inflexible in. That he expects them to have a strength in and he is going to remind them of this as he addresses the compromises within their life. Interesting enough, depending on whatever version of the Bible that you may be reading, that same term that, is, that we interpret as amen here can also, in other versions, be interpreted as truly, truly. Or if you read the King James Version, that same word will be verily, verily, I say unto you. So this actual Greek word that is translated for us as amen indicates to us that Jesus is about to say something that you need to listen to because it's going to be very, very important. So when he starts with amen, it's not the ending, it's listen up, what I have to tell you. And the second thing that he describes himself as is he is the faithful and true witness. When Jesus says to us that he is the witness, it means that I have a firsthand knowledge of your life that nobody else knows. Not only do I know your deeds, I know your thoughts. Not only do I know your thoughts, I know your motives. I am the faithful witness because I know it all. Nothing that you do or say is hidden from me. And so what I'm about to bring to your attention because I am the amen and because I am the faithful witness, what I am going to disclose to you is undisputable. It's not my opinion. It's fact because I'm the faithful and true witness. And the third way the Lord represents himself to this church in terms of his character is he's he calls himself the ruler of God's creation. I think that there probably is a better way to interpret that term ruler 
that would be just as accurate as that, and that would be the the beginning or the source. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the beginning and I am the source of all creation. Everything that exists, including you, your church, your city, exists because I created it. So vast is my knowledge of all of this. One of the problems in the church and in the town as well was this overall attitude that they had developed of of self-sufficiency, that we don't need anyone. And we don't need anything. We're doing okay as a church. We're perfectly okay with the programs that we're running. And so the Lord is identifying to them, you think you're okay on your own, but I want you to know that what I see is completely different than what you see. And he moves from there into this diagnosis of the believers. As he addresses the church, first of all, we discovered that this is only the second church, Laodicea and Sardis, that Jesus has nothing good to say. I don't know about you. That would scare me to death. To stand before the Lord and you know he's looking not at you. He's looking through you. And he goes, hmm, trying to come up with something here. To just, I, can't, I can't come up with anything good to say about you. That, that would be devastating. And he looks at this church. And like Sardis, he looked at them and he says, you think you're alive, but you're dead. You're just a zombie church. And to Laodicea, he looks at them and can come up with nothing good whatsoever. No affirming words that can get their attention. So from a human perspective, it's easy to be impressed with the church at Laodicea. I mentioned before that if I were a pastor and I was looking for a church to send my resume to, and Laodicea was without a pastor, I probably would send my resume there. Because looking at it from the outside, it probably had an impressive building probably had an impressive organization. It would have had an amazing financial record, a list of members that was very impressive in their influence. It would truly have been a church that today we likely would have had the pastor of this church out teaching seminars to other churches on how you can do it right because it looked good on the outside. In fact, I I wonder sometimes as the other churches read these letters, if they didn't look at that and say, wow, I've always wanted to be like Laodicea, and I see what God is writing to them, and it changes everything. And so he begins to address their purpose in verses 15 and 16 when he says this, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you. And that word spit may also be interpreted as vomit. So sickening is this impulse of the Lord. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I've come to discover this about humanity. We hate extremes in temperatures. I know we live in Syracuse, and I know it's getting near the end of November. But... There are times when we will walk into the church on a Sunday morning and for whatever reason the heater hasn't kicked in. And I've seen some of you walk in and you're grabbing your coats and you're going, oh, I can see my breath in the house, Lord. Oh. And there are other times, if you, if you ever stepped into my office, my office is directly above the two huge heaters and there's no insulation between them. I can melt chocolate on my desk. When, when the heat is on. So I will go into my office and the first thing I do in the morning is I turn my air conditioner on just to balance the heat that's radiating through my floor. Why? Because we don't like it too hot. And we don't like it too cold. 
we find that we have a couple of degrees right in the middle that most of us function well in. We kind of like that middle place. And I, I find it interesting that this church had settled for that comfortable place in it. It was, it was comfortable to attend the church. Nobody took any doctrinal issues seriously. It was comfortable to go there because they avoided issues to, to have to debate over or to preach about. The church was compromising its teaching for the sake of peace. It was not their will that anybody would come in and feel uncomfortable with what was being said. And so they compromised everything so that people would be comfortable. In fact, you could probably attend that church for years and would never have been challenged or rebuked or corrected or exhorted, but only encouraged and only respected because it was a comfortable church. But it was a compromising church. And what does Jesus think about a church like this? His first term is yuck. You are nauseating to me. People may like it, but Jesus does not. They may be comfortable, but you make me sick. Wow. There's two ways to understand his terminology and the way he uses the word hot and cold here. There's the typical way that we've often understood for years, and that is that we look at the scripture and we think that Jesus is saying, I wish that you were all hot. In other words, that there was a fervency and a heat to your relationship with the Lord. That you, we use the term, especially Pentecostals, I'm on fire for the Lord. Now, people that don't know Jesus, that's a strange term to them. Do you know that we have a Christian ease that we use? That we're, you know, you're, you're what? We are on fire for the Lord. You know, indicating a, I am hot for God. And then there's this other side. And the Jesus saying, I wish that you were hot or cold. And we've always looked at that cold side and said that... What that meant was, I wish that you just you were either going to serve me wholeheartedly or not serve me at all. That you would just be cold spiritually. Don't use my name if you don't know me and you're not going to live for me. I would rather you be hot on fire for me or cold not know me at all than try to live in both worlds where you're pleasing everybody. I think, however, that the geography of this particular passage may suggest that there's an alternative meaning. When he says, I would rather have you hot or cold. When we looked at this city and the way it was built as a fortress city, that when they discovered there was no water, they actually tapped into two different water sources of the other cities that were nearby. Heropolis was a town that was known six miles away for its hot sulfur springs. People would go there because the water was like a jacuzzi. I'm not going to ask how many of you have jacuzzis because I may just drop by sometime. But we recognize that there's something about dipping yourself in the hot water at the end of a long day when your muscles are sore, when you've overexerted, that's just healing and relieving. And so this aqueduct that was coming from Heropolis had seven or six or seven miles to get through before it got to Laodicea. By the time that hot water got there, it was lukewarm. It was no longer hot. The other side, 10 miles, 10 miles away, is Coloss, which the letter of Colossians was written to. They had a spring there that was known for its pure, ice-cold, clear water. When you wanted refreshing water, you went there to that spring. They also had an aqueduct from that city into Laodicea. And after 10 miles of traveling, that cold water, by the time it got to Laodicea, was lukewarm. Hot from one side... Lukewarm by the time it got there. Cold from the other side. Lukewarm by the time it got there. I believe what the Lord was saying to Laodicea was this. I have sent people to you that were weary in spirit. 
that needed a healing touch in the church. They needed the healing touch of a hot water system to touch them. And you were lukewarm. They got nothing whatsoever by the time they got to you. I believe that he's also said, there are times when people come to church and they just need the refreshing of the Holy Spirit. Something that's cool to them and, and brings that thirst that they've got for me and quenches it. And by the time it gets to you, by the time they enter into your church, there's nothing refreshing about you whatsoever. You're just lukewarm. So the purpose of my church to be refreshing on one hand and healing on the other is completely lost on you, Laodicea. So mild are you that you're just like the water systems. By the time it gets to you, it's lost its fervency of hot and it's lost its fervency of cold. You are neither a beautiful river of life nor are you a warm blanket. There's neither refreshing nor healing in your church. So I will spit you out. Because you make me sick. And then he moves into verse 17. He said, you say, you say that you are rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blinded, and naked. As I looked at this, I thought, how interesting. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good at self-assessment. I... You know, if I'm hovering between a B minus or B, I will always give myself the B. I really want to say A minus and A, but I want to just be humble. <laughs> you know, when it comes to this self-assessment aspect, we look at ourselves through, through eyes that always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, don't we? We may not give others that benefit, but we always give ourselves that. And so here's this Laodicean church, and as they are asked to assess themselves, they're going, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing. And Jesus said, but let me tell you what I see from the amen, the one who knows it all. You do not know it that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, as he's going through this list, I would imagine once they got to wretched, that was probably a shock enough. But the fact that he kept going after that, at some point that church is going, can you just stop now? This is going downhill quick. And he says this, there's a big difference between you say and you are. There's a big difference between you say and and you are. And the Lord points out this difference. He is the faithful and true witness. His is not an opinion. His is a determination. And so his, his words in verse 17 strike me as compassionate to a lukewarm Christian and to a lukewarm church. He says, listen, I am moved with profound sorrow to the point that I'm not willing to let you stay in that condition. I'm going to point it out to you so that I can bring healing to you and bring promises to you. But you've got to know who you are, not what you think of yourself. And I think that in this, you look at this and you say, Jesus is looking there and going, you really don't know, do you? You really don't know your own condition. You have no idea how bad it is. Because you've been cruising along in a peaceful time and you've been living in a place where you don't think you have any needs. And you have no idea how bad things are for you. He says, because when I look at you, you're wretched, miserable, poor, pitiable, naked, and blind. And you look at this and you say, how did the church get into this kind of condition? It happens when you think that you can do it on your own. There may be days in your life when you wake up and you look at the schedule of the day and you're going, you know what, God, I'm gifted enough to handle this day without you. 
I appreciate that, but you can just sit it out today. You can just watch me. I'm going to make you proud. You just watch how I handle things today. God, you're, at the end of the day, you're going to go, well done. I don't even need you. And you know what? We may get away with that one day or two days, but you begin to live your life as if you just want God to observe and be proud of you, and you suddenly recognize that you are drying up on the vine because the life-giving Spirit of the Lord has not been flowing in you. And before long, He's going to look at you and go, you don't even know, do you? You don't even know who you are and what's going on. And we get so busy doing our own things that we exclude him from our affairs. And we wind up becoming these kind of qualities, wretched and miserable and naked and blind and poor. And so the Lord calls us back to personal fellowship where in that introspection, as he's looking at us, he says, a good evaluation is necessary for you. And I'm going to be lovingly truthful with you because I'm compassionate to you. The church is to be a source of truth and vision, and it is a church that's charged with the task of making people understand the program of God throughout history and of interpreting events of the day so that men can see what God is doing and not what man intends to do. The church's work is to, is to share the truth about humanity's lost condition and the good news that a Savior has been born who will save us from our sin and to fill us with His Holy Spirit so that we can be empowered to do the work of ministry. And judged by that standard, the lay to see in church had failed miserably in all of it. And so he speaks to them about an action in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Isn't it interesting that the three leading industries of Laodicea are exactly the way he speaks to them? The context of scripture amazes me. Because in this, he speaks to the bankers and says, you may think that you've got all the wealth in the world, but you need to trade that in for what I can give you because what I give you is real gold. It is a value that will never end. Your money is going to come and your money is going to go. Your houses may look good now, but there's coming a day they will all be destroyed. I advise you, I counsel you to buy of me that which you cannot produce on your own. For an industry that was noted for its black wool, he says to them, buy of me white garments of righteousness which I can give. Trade that black wool for something that indicates that there's a purity in you that I have provided for you. And then he says to those in the medical industry, how about you getting some of the ISAF from me so that you can really see because you've been blind to yourselves as to what's really going on. And in all of this, the message of the Lord is unmistakable. Come back to me, he's saying. Come back to fellowship with me. Come back to the aspect of I provide everything you need. I'm calling the church to be the church again. And fulfill your purpose. And then in Revelation 3, 19 and 20, he says, Those who I love, I rebuke and discipline. If there was ever verses in the Bible that I would just like to remove, this might be one of them. Lord, can you love me without rebuking me and without disciplining me? Now, I grew up in a day and age like many of you here where things that my parents may have done to punish me may be outlawed today. But before my father would bring the belt to my rear end, he would often use words like this. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Have any of you ever heard that baloney before? I see several hands I know what kind of background you came from. I used to think, Dad, if that's true, then why don't we just switch places? Let me, let me feel your pain. I am quite certain after I whoop your hind in, I'm going to hurt and I'll never do it again. 
He never went for that either. But there's something about the, the action of love that requires correction. For all of you teenagers who wonder why mom and dad is so hard on you, it's because they want you to live another day. They correct you and give guidance. In wisdom, you listen to them and you honor them and you respect them. And then we who are adults need to take that same advice as it relates to our spiritual life and love and honor and respect the discipline and the correction of the Lord because that's what Revelation is about up to this point. He's pointing out areas that he wants to do a work in our life. And then his response to us is saying, here's how I want you to respond to my discipline. I want you to earnestly, and that word also means zealously, earnestly, zealously, quickly, and passionately repent. I believe that it would be wise of us to start every day in our prayer time before we begin to ask God for everything that we think we're going to need that day. If we just stop and say, Lord, before I even start, can you just forgive me? Just forgive me. I, I love getting here early, early on Sunday mornings and just walking in the sanctuary when it's quiet. And I started this morning by saying, Lord, I know today that you are tasking me with taking the purity of your word. But unfortunately, it's going to go through the compromised vessel of humanity today. So would you clean me? So that I don't pollute your word with my opinion and my will, but that what your people receive is genuinely from you. And Lord, I'm a sinful being, and that can't happen without your touch. And I believe that that's what he's telling this church. Listen, start your day by repenting and do it because I love you. I'm bringing these things out to you. And in verse 20, here I am. Here I am, he says, here I am. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This is the most used salvation text that there is in Scripture. It shows Christ in this beautiful picture, standing outside the door, speaking through the door, while he's knocking on the door, trying to get the attention of those who are inside the door. Now, here's what I want you to understand. He's doing this to a church. He's speaking to Christians. Somewhere along the way, you squeezed me out and I'm outside now seeking to get back in. It should sober us when we see this in the context in which it's written. The first thing we notice is Jesus is outside trying to get back in. How in the world does Jesus get, get excommunicated from his own church? This church is just going about the affairs as usual. And the Lord gets pushed out of it. And I begin to think, how do we do this in our own individual lives? We get so busy with our priorities and so busy in doing the things that we do that suddenly we begin to realize that Jesus has been squeezed up against the wall and the only place for him to go is to take the exit and step outside. And suddenly we're loaded with busyness, we're loaded with activity, but Jesus is gone and we never even knew he was missing. I think the second meaning of this passage is, is perhaps most stunning. Is that I'm surprised that Jesus is still there knocking. In human terms... When somebody pushes us away from them, when somebody wounds us or says something that hurts us or acknowledges us to us that they are not important and we get shoved out of that circle, 
very rarely do we try to get back in. We step back from that and say, okay, you want to make things right, you come to me. You come seek me out. When you apologize, when you're on your knees in front of me telling me how much of an idiot you've been, then maybe I'll, I'll respond. But here, here we see Jesus who humbles himself. Humility. Humiliated that he's been shoved out of his own church and has to stand and knock on the door and say, can you guys let me back in? Rather than saying... I'm writing you off, Laodicea. You deserve what you're about to get because in chapter 4, we're going to get into the throne room and you're not going to be there. How easy would that have been for him? But instead, he models for us, and this is an important part. He models for us how that we can repair broken relationships, whether they be marriage relationships, marriage with ch- or relationships with children. He said at some point, the spiritual person has to humble themselves and continue to knock. I've had people come into my office in counseling sessions and say, well, which one of us needs to apologize? And I always say, whoever's the most spiritual among you. It gets really quiet about that time. But where do we get that? Right here. Jesus, having been shoved out, is still there. Saying it's not over for you yet. You hurt me. You've ignored me. You've ruined the purpose that I created you for. You've been useless to this point. But I'm back. And I'm still knocking. Oh, how great is the grace of our Savior. Who keeps knocking regardless of what you have done within your life. A great Jewish scholar wrote this. The only thing that no Jewish prophet nor Jewish rabbi ever conceived of is the conception of God actually going out in conquest of sinful men who were not seeking Him but were turned away from Him. It would be great enough to think that a God could accept us back when we came to Him. It is beyond belief to think of a God who goes out and searches and stands and knocks at the door and we are stunned and surprised that He's still there. How great is the grace of God. And then he follows that up with this declaration of reward. If any man will open the door, I will come in with him and sup with him and he with me. And I use that term sup. It's a King James word because it means supper. They had, their breakfast would be like grabbing a, uh, you know, a Dunkin' Donuts coffee and a donut and running to work. I mean, there was not a lot of family time with that. And their lunch was be at work and it was more of a snack. Supper meant something to this culture. That was when they came together and they, they waited and they talked and they had fellowship. And, and this is why we as Christians love to eat together. It's right here in Scripture. And he's saying, I want the time with you. I don't want breakfast with you. I want supper with you. And I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And, and here's the terminology they use. And I think it's important. He said... I will come into him and sup with him. And then it says this, and he with me. He added that in there because here's what he says. I'm coming and I know that you may not want to open the door because you don't want me to see your cluttered house. But let me tell you something. When I come in, I'm bringing all the goodies with me. So here's this vision of the Lord standing at the door knocking. And behind him, he's got a cook. He's got a butler. He's got a maid. Everything that needs to make the house ready, he's coming in. He's got all of the supplies. He's gone grocery shopping. And he just wants you to open the door. And you're afraid because your dirty underwear are still living in the, laying in the living room. He goes, don't worry about that. Let me in. And I'm 
bringing the supplies because I'm a God that comes and I give. I come and I give. I come and I give. I'm the provider. Worship team, would you please come? So what I'm lacking, he makes up. He says, my, my host's bounty, I will take what you've got, but I'm going to add to it. And so there's this picture of the Lord standing at the door, and he's knocking, and behind him, I see all of these people at his command waiting to come into our life just to bring his glory to a great place. And then it says this to wrap this section of Revelation up. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit on my throne. I want you to think, think about this in the context of this morning. Here's a wasted church, but he never gave up on them. He said, if you will just zealously repent, you're going to rule with me. You're going to rule with me. Oh, what a wonderful word revelation is into the word of these churches is to us who struggle sometimes with just getting through the days going, listen, overcome, hear what the Spirit has to say. I'm coming and I've got great gifts for you. I'm the one that forgives the past and forgives all the failure and we'll start brand new. And this is the last word to the church before what I believe is the rapture taking place when we enter into the presence of the Lord. What a great word, a last word. You got one more chance, church. I'm giving you one more chance. So great is my grace. Even when you have offended me and wounded me, I still stand humbly knocking because you're worth it to me.